Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then. What was happening a hundred years ago this week? And it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is October 4th, 2017, and our guests this week are Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Richard Rubin, author of The Last of the Doughboys and Back Over There, Chris Stout from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and David Hanna, author of the World War I book and now website, Rendezvous with Death. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Before we get going today, I wanted to let you know, especially all of you who own Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices. Alexa has a new skill. If you say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast, she'll dutifully find the most current episode on the internet and play it for you. We're very excited because that opens up the World War I Centennial News Podcast to 20 million new players, and all you have to do is ask. Welcome to the future, but right now, let's jump into our Wayback Machine and head 100 years into the past. Yes, we've gone back in time 100 years to explore the war that changed the world. And it's the first week of October 1917. So what's on the U.S. government's mind this week? Why, raising money to pay for the war. Dateline, October 1st, 1917. Headline, Secretary of the Treasury McAdoo begins second Liberty Loan Drive. $5 billion from 10 million subscribers fixed as goal. So, in 1917, financing a war with deficit spending is not at all the plan. The Wilson administration is determined to raise the money needed for this immense effort, and in part by issuing government-backed war bonds. This is innovative, and it's interesting to note that the same 1917 law that authorizes the war bonds will continue to be used to sell U.S. Treasury bonds 100 years later. Back in June, during our episode 24, we reported on the Wilson administration touting that the first Liberty Loan Drive was an unprecedented success. In fact, they raised $2 billion from 5.5 million people. A century later, that $2 billion is the equivalent of $38 billion. So it's not too bad. This second Liberty Loan Drive is targeted at twice as much revenue from two times as many subscribers. Though there's a lot of controversy about how successful the Liberty Bond program is, with the government claiming huge success and other press of the time criticizing lackluster enthusiasm, anyone who has ever undertaken to raise substantial amounts of money knows this is no cakewalk. Focusing on participation by the general public as small investors, Secretary McAdoo reaches out to the administration's secret weapon. 
Their powerhouse of propaganda, their empresario of promo, their master of emotion, their superman of spin, George Creel's Committee on Public Information. This is the same outfit that publishes the daily official bulletin that we use here on the podcast every week to tell you the story of World War I, and whose pages we republish daily on the centennial anniversary of their original publication at www.cc.org bulletin. Well, anyway, Creel is probably America's first marketing genius. He shows up as the man behind the curtain all over the place during this period, and with outrageous but brilliant ideas. Like in late May, as the first Liberty Loan Drive wraps up, he gets all of the churches, schools, and city halls around the country to ring their bells every night in a countdown to the end of the first drive. Now talk about bringing your promotion down to the grassroots. Last week, we reported on the massive national billboard campaign for Food Will Win the War, including the use of electric lights to light up the billboards at night. We haven't verified that Creel was the man behind this endeavor, but it has his style written all over it. He's also a multimedia and social media genius, and in 1917, that means the flaming hot new media of the movies and the phonograph. Before the fourth Liberty Bond sale is over, and there will be four of them, Creel will have recruited the biggest stars of the day, including Al Jolson, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and his premier celebrity pitchman, Charlie Chaplin. Creel doesn't just go big, he also goes wide. George puts together a citizen army of 70,000 called the Four Minute Men. He arms them with four-minute speeches, and in this case on why buying bonds is the key to liberty and freedom for Americans and why it is every citizen's patriotic duty to participate. Then he sends this army into every movie theater in the nation, arranging for them to make their presentation just before the feature film. And so McAdoo launches his second Liberty Loan campaign 100 years ago this week. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog, to walk us through his fascinating post, A Ring of Spies in Palestine. It's all about a Jewish spy ring assisting the British against the Turks that gets busted by the Turkish secret police. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Here are the headlines from the Great War Project this week. Ring of Spies in Palestine. A young woman keeps her secrets under pain of death, seeking a national home for the Jews, and this is special to the Great War Project. A century ago, in October, the situation for the Allies looks desperate on almost all fronts. The fight for the Belgian village of Passchendaele is a stalemate, with thousands of casualties on both sides. Killed and wounded are growing. Many soldiers are drowning in the mud and muck. Few American soldiers are ready yet, their training is too slow, and their commander, General John J. Pershing, explodes at the laconic pace of their deployment. And at sea, writes historian Martin Gilbert, the Allies are not doing much better. Russia has ships deployed in the Baltic Sea, but the Russian fleet there refuses to obey orders of the provisional government in Petrograd. While the Germans make plans for more attacks near the Russian shores, the crew of one Russian mine layer refuses to lay its mines. On the Italian fronts, the number of Italian deserters had risen to 70,000. And in Palestine, Gilbert reports, the Turkish secret police have broken a valuable Jewish spy ring working for the British and arrested one of its leaders, Sarah Aronson. 
For four days they tortured her, Gilbert writes, but she revealed nothing. Then on October 5th, she killed herself. Sarah and her brother Aaron were instrumental in creating a Jewish spy ring in Palestine, providing invaluable intelligence for the British there. As a result, the British began to look carefully at replacing Turkish rule by a Zionist entity under British rule. That summer, Gilbert writes, Lord Rothschild, leader of the Jewish community in Britain, gave the British government a draft formula for a Jewish national home in Palestine that would serve to encourage Jews in all the Allied armies to seek the defeat of the Turks as an important aim. Writes Gilbert, at first the British government moved slowly in its response, but on October 2nd, British intelligence learned of a meeting in Berlin at which plans were made by the Germans and Turks to offer the Jews of Europe a German-sponsored Jewish national home in Palestine. This stimulated the British search for a formula that would make the Allied offer to the Jews more attractive. As for the story of Sarah Aronson, reports of a Jewish spy ring in Palestine were circulating in Constantinople for some time, writes historian Scott Anderson. The Turks favored the use of torture on the Jews they seized. The Germans counseled a more delicate approach, all the time aware that they could use the support of the Jews in the war effort. But in the case of Sarah Aronson, the Turkish approach prevailed. She was seized at her family's home near Jerusalem, tied to a post, and beaten and whipped mercilessly but she revealed nothing. The Turks ordered Sarah and the other Jews in the spy ring to be taken to Nazareth. She asked permission to clean her bloodied face before a Turkish convoy would set out. Reports Anderson, at her family home, she was allowed to step into a bathroom unattended. Then she drew a revolver she had secreted in a cubbyhole in anticipation of just such a situation and shot herself in the mouth. She was 27 years old. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project this week, 100 years ago. Wow. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. This week in the Great War in the Sky, there are two stories worth noting. The first involves a British battlecruiser, the HMS Repulse. At the time, she's touted to be the fastest battleship in the fleet. On October 1st, 1917... Having built a strange, slightly up-angled platform on top of one of the turrets of one of the big 15-inch guns, her captain faces the repulse into the wind. Sitting atop the platform, Royal Navy Air Services Commander F.J. Rutland fires up the engine of his Sopwith Pup fighter plane. He cranks the RPM higher, higher, and higher still as the battlecruiser pushes into the wind. Finally... He lets loose the brakes and his plane launches to the air, making it the first fighter plane ever to launch from such a ship. He, of course, doesn't even attempt to land her the same way. And we have a link in the podcast notes showing you a picture of the rig that they built. Also this week, on October 5th, after a long period of unfavorable weather, the Germans finally send planes to the UK for a night raid on London. 19 Gotha bombers and two Riesenflugzeug bombers come at the Brits in several waves, causing quite a bit of damage but inflicting no casualties. Now, Riesenflugzeug literally means giant airplane in German, and they were. These multi-engine behemoths had wingspans of 100 feet or more and seemed more like an exercise in the art of what's possible instead of the art of war. This was to be the last German raid against the UK until January of 1918. 
the Gotha Bombers, and two of these behemoth flying machines let loose their payloads over the UK during the War in the Sky 100 years ago this week. We also have a link to a picture of the Riesenflugzeugs in the podcast notes. If you'd like to watch some videos about World War I, visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. They have well over 400 episodes about World War I and from a more European perspective. The new episodes this week include The Battle of Polygon Wood and a recap of our trip to Italy and Slovenia. And finally, Denmark in World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the program is not about history, but about the centennial of the war that changed the world and how it's being commemorated today. This week in Commission News, we highlight a panel discussion about the origins of the Trilateral Alliance. The alliance between Britain, America, and France during World War I its difficult birth, and its enduring impact after the war. The event was part of the Great War Alliance Forum at the Meridian International Center, a premier nonprofit global leadership organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. Our own commissioner, Monique Seafried, was part of the team that explored the history of the Trilateral Alliance, societal changes, and the future of global conflict. You can read more about the event and watch the videos of this insightful discussion by following the link in the podcast notes. Next, in our Activities and Events section, we wanted to follow up on a report about the rededication of the Cardines baseball field, which took place on September 29th. U.S. Centennial Commissioner Jack Monahan attended the event in Rhode Island that included an Army-Navy baseball game played by students from the U.S. Naval War College dressed in period baseball uniforms. Thanks to Associated Press reporter Jennifer McDermott from Rhode Island, the story about this unique and fun World War I commemoration event got picked up by newspapers, blogs, and posts around the country. This includes the New York Times, the Washington Post, and local papers in Washington State, North Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, and more. Check out the articles from all across the country in the podcast notes. We'd like to invite you to add your own event to the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register. Just go to wwwcc.org events, click on the big red button, and post your World War I commemoration event for all to discover. We just added a new category this week for social media events. So if you're planning a Facebook Live, live stream, World War I hackathon, or other online World War I commemoration event, get it posted and let our community of interest know about it. Now we're joined by our good friend Richard Rubin, author of the World War I books The Last of the Doughboys and Back Over There. Richard is joining us today to talk about his experience during speaking engagements about World War I. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Kyle. Okay, so Richard, you've gone around the country to speak about your books, the research that went into them, and World War I at large. Tell us a little bit about these events. 
Well, uh, I've always spoken at larger venues like universities, museums, uh, things like that. And when The Last of the Doughboys came out, I spoke, of course, at the World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library in Chicago, the Library of Congress in D.C., and lots of other places like that. But um, I live in Maine. And I do all of my writing at libraries because there are too many distractions at home. And one day my local public library asked me if I would be interested in coming in and speaking about the book. And I said, sure. Uh, and I did. And then the word spread to other libraries that I did this. And I started getting invitations first around Maine and then around uh, northern New England. And then it expanded down to southern New England and New York. And so now, in addition to these larger venues, I give lots of talks at public libraries and uh, historical societies and things like that, too. The audiences tend to be smaller in the larger venues. You know, they can they can get a couple of hundred people, but at a library, uh, you might get 50, 60, 75 people. It's a lot more intimate, and it's more of a conversation, I find, between me and the people in attendance. Richard, you mentioned that people often come to your events with artifacts, photos, mementos, and family histories. Why do you think they're so eager to share these with you? I think that, that there's this great hunger out there in this country for stories about America in World War One, uh, People who have ancestors, parents or grandparents or uncles, great uncles, uh, who fought in that war and have wanted always all their lives to know much more about it, really haven't had a lot of places to go. And so when they find out that somebody is coming to their town to speak on the subject, I think they really want to share with me what it is that they know. I think, first of all, they feel uh, a sense of gratitude that somebody is talking about it, but they also sense that I'm a person who's genuinely interested in these things. And in a way, uh, much like the World War I veterans I interviewed for The Last of the Doughboys were sort of um, passing on their stories to me, uh, these people are also passing on their ancestors stories to me. And it's, um, it's a very personal exchange. People uh, often bring things to show me. And sometimes people bring things to give me, things that belong to their father or grandfather that their children or grandchildren or even great grandchildren aren't interested in. And they just don't want them to end up being sold uh, at an estate sale uh, after they're gone. And so they bring them along and give them to me. Okay, so is there one story or artifact that somebody brought in that stands out in your mind? I'll just tell you two quick stories. At one talk I gave, a woman came, and she had a very large scrapbook. It looked like uh, um, a Manhattan Yellow Pages uh, back in the days when that still existed. A very, very big, thick scrapbook. And she brought it up to me and told me that this was uh, stuff relating to her father's service in the war. And there was a long line of people waiting to talk to me and have their book signed. So I looked through it a little bit and I said, uh, gee, I wish I had more time to go through all of this. And she reached into her purse and pulled out a DVD and said, well, that's okay. I scanned it all for you. And here it is, which is just wonderful. And I've really enjoyed uh, for hours going through these records. But even more than that, one time I gave a talk and an elderly gentleman came. He must have been in his late 80s. 
And after the talk, he came up to me and he handed me uh, a photocopied uh, document. It was probably about 20 pages um, stapled. And his father had served over in France, too, in the Yankee division. And right after the armistice, the YMCA gave out paper, lined paper and pencils to his company and others in his regiment and told them that if they wished, they could write down their memories of what they had seen and done in France during the war. And they didn't have to give it into anybody. They could just keep it and pass it along to their families when they got back home, if they had questions or anything like that. And this fellow had photocopied his father's uh, handwritten record, jotted down on this YMCA stationery in pencil uh, just days after the armistice and uh, gave it to me. And very, very personal. These personal things, uh, deeply, deeply personal records, uh, I think are the things that stand out the most in my memory. Richard, if somebody wants to hold one of these events, how do they get a hold of you? Well, most people find me through my website, which is richardrubinonline.com, and Rubin is R-U-B-I-N. You can also email me directly at richardrubinwriter at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me through Facebook. I'm Richard Rubin Author, at Richard Rubin Author. I'm really happy to go speak anywhere that people want to have me. Richard Rubin, thanks so much for coming in. Well, it's my pleasure, Taya. Thanks. That was author Richard Rubin. We have links in the podcast notes to Richard's website, which is also a great way to contact him. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that are rooted in the war. First, for some background. In Spanish, a bobo is a fool, a clown, or somebody who's easily cheated. In the late 1800s, the term was anglicized into booby for terms like booby prize and booby trap. Then it signified a prank, like putting a book or water on top of a door that's left ajar so that when somebody walks in... In World War I, the word booby trap, this week's speaking World War I word, took on a much more sinister meaning. The English war journalist Sir Philip Gibbs wrote in his war memoir, quote, The enemy left slow-burning fuses and booby traps to blow a man to bits or blind him for life if he touched a harmless-looking stick or opened the lid of a box or stumbled over an old boot. So in World War I, troops picked up on the phrase to describe a myriad of explosive devices deliberately disguised as harmless objects often left behind in territory that exchanged hands, hidden in doorways, set to go off when a curious soldier opened the lid of a box or rifled through abandoned equipment. In modern times, with this tactic becoming a major tool in asymmetric warfare, the term was updated to IED, Improvised Explosive Device. Booby Trap A fool's trap, one of the words that was altered forever during the war that changed the world. See the podcast notes to learn more. Next, we're going to profile another 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. That's our $200,000 matching grant giveaway to rescue ailing World War I memorials. Last week, we profiled a project from Swanton, Ohio. This week, we head to Ridgewood, New Jersey. 
Joining us is Chris Stout, a member of the Ridgewood American Legion Post 53 and a self-appointed amateur local historian. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. I must say I'm very flattered and honored to be uh, among these, these scholars. Chris, the saying is, a man is not dead until he's forgotten. And that frames your 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. Tell us about it. Well, it actually frames a lot more than that. This bio that I did for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials is a follow-up on a series of bios that I did on all of the military service casualties in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and uh, surrounding area. I wrote about uh, over 160 biographies of how these people lived and died, and they were published in the local papers, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, what got me really going on that is when I started, I went over to the local monument, and I looked at the names, and I said, who are these people? And really, they're to all of us, many of us, they were just a list of anonymous names. And I decided I wanted to uh, find out who they were and, uh, and how they lived and how they died. And that's what I did. And that project was finished several years ago until earlier this year, a friend of mine came across the list of World War I casualties from Ridgewood. And we were discussing it. And I said, well, hold on a minute. Who is this? And the name was Antonia Wendells. And I, Antonia, I said, we, do, do we have a female World War I casualty? Well, the, the name in the list came from the New Jersey State Archives, so it's, it's, it's got, got you know, provenance. And we did a little bit of research, and we found out that they had made a typo, and it was actually Antoni, A-N-T-H-O-N-I-E, Wendell's. And we decided that we really had to include this person among all the uh, World War I casualties. And I saw the, the, the Pritzker Military Museum's competition in the American Legion magazine, and I said, why not give it a shot? Because Ridgewood has a beautiful World War I monument, which actually was designed by uh, Henry Bacon, who was the architect of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. And it's, it's gorgeous, and it's very well maintained, taken care of uh, very well, and doesn't need any rehab or, or restoration of the sort. But I decided that it needed to be updated, and that is the premise of my, my submission, is that we updated our memorial, and we added Anthony Wendell's name to the memorial on Memorial Day this year. So what was your reaction when you learned about being one of the awardees for the matching grant? Well, I was very excited because it's like any, any competition, whether it be national or local, big or small, if you win or if you're one of these 50 finalists, it's very exciting and very, very, very flattering, and, and, it, and it is truly an honor. Chris, can you tell us about the rededication that took place on Memorial Day? The American Legion Post always hosts the Memorial Day ceremony uh, in Ridgewood, like in many towns, and we read the list of all our 113 casualties from all the 20th century conflicts. Fortunately, we have no 21st century casualties, and we read them, and we added... Anthony Wendell's name to it, and uh, in part of the uh, overall ceremony was uh, to tell the crowd, the visitors, the people in attendance, that we were indeed adding a name to the World War I monument 100 years after the man had been killed in action with the Distinguished Service Cross and forgotten, literally forgotten, and now he will be remembered forever. You know, Chris, what really distinguishes your project from me 
is that it's a fairly small project from a dollar standpoint, but a really huge project in terms of significance. Well, thank you uh, for, for pointing that out. It, no, uh, monetarily, it, it's a small project, but uh, I think in the overall scheme of things, uh, remembering and identifying and knowing who this person was and putting him in a place of honor is, uh, is, is the reward that we wanted. So I want to congratulate you and all of the members of American Legion Post 53 in New Jersey. Well, thank you very much. That was Chris Stout, member of American Legion Post 53, local historian, and resident of Ridgewood, New Jersey. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their unique and amazing projects on the show over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program and how you can submit your own project into round two for a matching grant by going to www.cc.org slash 100 Memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes. In our Remember the Veterans section, today we have David Hanna with us. David is a history teacher at Stuyvesant High School in New York City and author of two books, Knights of the Sea about a naval battle that occurred off the coast of Maine in 1813, and Rendezvous with Death about the original group of American volunteers in the French Army in 1914. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. David, how did you come to write a book about the American volunteers of World War I? I'd always had an interest in World War I. My maternal grandfather, John Alco, served in France in 1918 with the Keystone Division and then with the 19th Engineers, so I heard stories from him. Then uh, after I had my first book published, my editor had suggested other military history topics, and the last Fiat Escadrille was uh, a topic that I was interested in. I did some preliminary research, and I was drawn uh, more to the uh, original volunteers in 1914. This was before the Lafayette Escadrille had ever been formed. A number of them uh, became the founding members of the nucleus of the of the squadron. There was something about their commitment that I just found very appealing. They were uh, an idealistic bunch. Now, as you noted, dozens of Americans that volunteered in 1914 represented a whole cross-section of American society at the time. What do you think the common impulse was that made them volunteer for the war? There were really two things. Uh, large numbers of them were already living in France, Paris in particular, the expat lifestyle, poets, painters, would-be poets and painters in some cases, even some professional boxers and musicians. And so they they had an affinity for for Paris and for France, and you know the it was uh, it felt that in some ways they owed something, particularly as they saw friends who were French who were getting up the, the call-up papers and heading to the front. And then there were others who were in the states who had a more idealistic, abstract understanding of the struggle, and they felt that they, they owed it to France and to some degree to themselves to get themselves there and join the struggle. The one thing certainly in common was they felt that France represented the, the civilizational values that, that they shared, whereas they felt that Germany was uh, essentially a bully and that they were using their economic and military might to change the balance of power in Europe in their favor. And it was sort of a case of might makes right versus this idea of civilization. And that, that term for civilization, it comes up repeatedly when you look at the, the record. You know, why are we here? What, why, what are we fighting for? You know, for civilization, the cause of all humanity. They seem to have really believed this. And even after having been under 
under fire and actually some really intense combat in some of the great offensives of the war. They, they didn't seem to, to waver in their idealism. I didn't see that, that disillusionment creep in. Now, there were many famous individuals who volunteered early on in the war. Ernest Hemingway, Alan Seeger, E.E. E. Cummings, Walt Disney. So of all of these many volunteers you researched, does anyone or anything stand out for you? One that comes to mind is Victor Chapman. He was from a very wealthy family, and he, he grew up on the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, he lost his brother. His brother had drowned when he was a boy, and of course it would have an effect on anyone, but apparently the effect it had on him was that he, was, he would put himself at great risk to try to help others, save others. And when he went to France, uh, he was there studying, to be an architect if I recall, but he was really a painter, an artist. And there are various accounts of him putting himself at great risk to rescue comrades who were in distress. I, I find it interesting, I think, that he was more inclined to want to save lives than take them. I, I felt after learning about Chapman, that in some ways he might have been better suited to the ambulance corps, which, for instance, Ernest Hemingway had served in, uh, than serving in the, in the Foreign Legion and then in the uh, Lafayette Escadrille. There was a sensitivity to some of the, the writings he left behind in his letters, particularly about flying, were, were really beautiful. He had a way of describing things that I think only an artist can. David, how did you decide on the title Rendezvous with Death? It comes from a poem by... Alan Seeger, probably his most famous poem, and it was written in 1916, actually a couple months prior to his death on the 4th of July, and the assault on Deloitte and Santerre, which was part of the larger Somme offensive. But I've a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year, and I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. It's, it can be read as a rather fatalistic poem. He seems to have made up his mind early on that this was something that he committed to, and he was going to see it through, even if it did, in fact, mean his death. You put up a website on the commission server. What kind of information can I find there? Well, I posted things that I thought might be interesting for people who had read the book in particular. There are the actual images of various articles in both English and French from various American and French newspapers there. There's also, using the Google Map feature, the different places that you can go visit. So if you wanted to go on sort of a pilgrimage, if you will, uh, and join Seeger and Chapman and their comrades, there are various uh, battle sites, monuments, museums, and so forth that you can visit. And I'll actually be adding more material to this in the months ahead. David, thank you so much for joining us. That was my pleasure. Thank you, Dale. That was David Hanna, author of Rendezvous with Death and curator of the website at www.cc.org slash rendezvous. The links are in the podcast notes. For our international report, we head to France, to the town of Versailles, for an interesting story about two companion statues. One of General Pershing and the other of the Marquis de Lafayette. The statues were recently restored and rededicated on October 6, 2017. The dual monuments of the generals were originally built in 1937. Two equestrian statues of the generals on nine-meter-tall pedestals on either side of the road leading into the town of Versailles. The two statues were erected to commemorate the friendship between France and the United States and to pay tribute to the American troops for their significant contribution to the Allied victory in 1918. 
The statues were hastily built in plaster with a bronze patina so that they could be in place and on view for their inauguration, which took place with General Pershing present on a European tour. The plaster statues were soon damaged by exposure and had never been replaced until now. On October 6, 2017, exactly 80 years after their initial inauguration, permanent versions of the statues were rededicated. Read more about the statues and the rededication by following the link in the podcast notes. It's time for an update from our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship. This week's post is What the Mountains Hold, a writer's trek through the Dolomites of Mark Halperin's World War I Italy. The post brings a fresh face to the World War I Italy described in Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Author and veteran Shannon Huffman Polson takes us on a spellbinding trek through the Dolomites, where 689,000 Italians perished during the war. Following the footsteps of characters from Mark Halperin's novel A Soldier of the Great War, Polson leads us through the stark, striking landscape of one of Italian history's most indelible memories, a stunning narrative not to be missed. Read it by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz. The centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, you have two stories to share with us today. Take it away. Hi, Teo. The first thing I wanted to share today is a series of videos called 100 Years of Victory. The series comes from the Fort Riley Museums located in Kansas and including both the U.S. Cavalry Museum and the 1st Infantry Division Museum. The video series, which you can watch on their Facebook page, follows the 1st Division as they train at Gondrecourt 100 years ago. Follow the link in the podcast notes to watch these fascinating archival footage videos of Doughboy's hard at work in France. Lastly for this week, I wanted to share with you all a social media initiative that the commission takes on each year. We feel that one day per year is not enough to talk about our veterans, veterans' issues, veterans' needs, and veterans' contributions. This year, as in previous years, we will try to increase public awareness for our veterans. We'll use the hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day on social media posts that share the stories of veterans. We also look for and repost stories from other Countdown to Veterans Day participants, including you. Share your veteran's story, be it from World War I or earlier or more recently. Let's make every day from now until Veterans Day a day for veterans. You can also search all the content with the hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day at the links in the podcast notes or head over to worldwar1cc.org slash social to view all the great content, stories, and photos we've been sharing in the last week. And that's it for the buzz. Thank you, Catherine. Well, it's time to wrap things up. And for those of you who listen through to the very end of the episode, you know about the little treats that we always put there for you. Meanwhile, we want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, and his report on espionage in the Middle East. Richard Rubin, telling us about his experience speaking across the country. Chris Stout, from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Ridgewood, New Jersey. David Hanna, giving us insights into Americans who joined the war well before America did. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. 
The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. And if you're on a smartphone, you can text the words WW1 to 41444. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www1cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices by asking for ww one Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today with someone about the war that changed the world. It's the man behind the hammer and the plow who made this country what it is today. It's the man behind the hammer and the plow, the gift of God's creation, the builders of the nation, mechanic and the engineer, all on his sons of toil, the backbone of the world today, the man who tills the soil, it's up to him to win the battle now, the man behind the hammer and the plow. Alexa. Play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Getting the latest episode of World War One Centennial News. Here it is from TuneIn. So long.